Down in Florida, there's a marine mammal called a manatee, and they are these sweet, gentle creatures. And I intended this episode to be uh, on this tragedy unfolding involving the manatee, which is in 2021, thousands of these sweet, gentle, harmless animals uh, started starving to death. Uh, researching uh, that episode, what was the cause behind it, led me to a press release from a group called the Center for Biological Diversity. And the headline from this release from them says, study finds glyphosate in more than half of all sampled Florida manatees. Now there's a couple reasons why the manatees are dying, um, but this was one of the reasons. bodies were found with glyphosate in them and now keep in mind thousands have died so I said there's no way I can do a story on the manatees without first learning what glyphosate is in the process of trying to figure out what glyphosate is um, all roads led to two parties one is Monsanto and the other one is Carrie Gillum she's a journalist and an author and I'm very fortunate I have Carrie Gillum with me here on the phone. Um, Carrie, can you hear me? I can, yeah. Okay, Thank you for awesome. Me. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. Um, so this is a behemoth monster problem, this issue that involves pesticides in the environment. And Carrie, you wrote two books, uh, which are gaining a lot of notoriety. One whitewash that you wrote in 2017 and then the more recent one monsanto papers correct right the the newest one just came out in march of this year so what's the difference between the two books i know the first one is also about monsanto i believe and the second one is called monsanto papers so what what's the story between those two books? <laughs> Why two books, right? About Monsanto? Um, probably sure. not a thousand books, probably. Right. So um, I've been a journalist for a really long time, and uh, about thirty years now. I I worked for seventeen years uh, at Reuters International News Agency, and my job was to cover um, agriculture and uh, both from the commodity side and, and uh, international trade and, and the economic impacts, but also from the food and farming side um, and to understand the environmental and human health impacts of industrial farming. And that included uh, these novel genetically engineered crops that Monsanto rolled out in the 90s and how these crops were impacting farming practices and the chemicals that were used in conjunction uh, with industrial farming, including glyphosate, which Monsanto patented in 1974 and introduced to the world really as Roundup, although it appears in hundreds of other brands. It's uh, the active ingredient, the weed-killing ingredient. It's called glyphosate. And this was considered extraordinarily novel 
because it was so safe and because it was so efficient and effective at killing, you know, a wide variety of weeds. Anyway, I'm, I guess I'm getting too too long of an answer here. No, no. I, I covered this and I, as, as I was learning and spending a lot of time with Monsanto, but also with scientists and farmers and, uh, you know, learning this industry inside out and reporting on it for the world, um, glyphosate, which became the world's largest, uh, most widely sell, sold weed killer, uh, there was a lot of evidence of environmental and human health impacts um, and problems associated with that. And in 2015, a publisher came to me and said, you're writing a lot about this chemical glyphosate. Uh, I think you should write a book about it. And I said, gosh, no, no one wants to read a book about a pesticide. <laughs> uh, so I put that on the back burner for a year or two. And then the International uh, Agency for Research on Cancer declared it to be a probable human carcinogen and all sorts of lawsuits started being filed. You know, there was a lot of uh, attention drawn to this. And so I wrote my first book and it did win the Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists. And it, the first book, Whitewash, is really a very sort of scientific academic book and it looks at an in-depth, it's an in-depth study and analysis of Monsanto's history with this chemical, how it pushed this to international prominence to be so ubiquitous now in use that our government researchers have documented it in, you know, in our food, uh, in our bodies, in uh, even in water and even in rainfall uh, and air samples. It is, it is literally um, inescapable in our world today, this chemical that has been tied to cancer. So the first book really is, is all about that and using freedom of information, investigative tools to get government documents, regulatory documents. I was able to lay out how Monsanto had hidden uh, the risks and, and acted in deceptive ways. Uh, that was further laid out when these court cases went to trial and internal Monsanto documents came out, again, underscoring how the company had deceived regulators and lawmakers and the public about the harm of its product. And then the Monsanto Papers is, is a very different book, the one that just came out. It's, it's about the court cases. It follows the very first man to go to trial against Monsanto to take them to court to try to hold them accountable, and it follows his case. Lee Johnson. He, Lee Johnson, uh, diagnosed with non-Hodgkin lymphoma after excessive exposure to glyphosate, um, dying of a very horrible form of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, uh, very painful uh, young guy in his 40s, two little kids. Um, so it takes you into his struggle against cancer and, and then his struggle to to hold Monsanto accountable and through the court. It's sort of a legal drama, um, a much more probably readable book right. <laughs> for the general audience than, than Whitewash. But. No, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, from the book's description, uh, I'm just reading here, it says, with enough money, could a company endanger the public and get away with it for decades? And I think the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, I, and, and just about the Rachel Carson, book award so you, you you won the Rachel Carson book award a lot of people don't know who Rachel Carson 
was, but she was a researcher who exposed the dangers of DDT, correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, Rachel Carson wrote uh, different books. She wrote extensively on the environment. She was a very um, uh, intelligent, well-known, well-respected biologist. She died, unfortunately, of cancer in 1964, but her book, Silent Spring, which examined the impacts of the indiscriminate use of pesticides on the natural world, um, specifically looking at the decline in, in bird population, but, but also other important um, you know, pollinators and, and insects and how they were being impacted um, by our sort of ignorant and, and, as I said, indiscriminate use of pesticides. And that book, Silent Spring, spurred or is credited with spurring our, our modern environmental movement and the formation of a lot of different groups to, to try to work on protecting the environment and, and the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency as well. So her work was incredibly influential. And my book, Whitewash, you know, I, I give a nod to her, I quote her, and, and several scientists do believe and have said, and are quoted in my book, that glyphosate, you know, is indeed, can be seen as, as the DDT, you know, that we have now. Uh, there are many other chemicals you might be able to say that about as well. But um, and, and, you know, they keep increasing the amounts that they're putting on the land every year. I think Rachel Carson also said, call them biocides because they kill life, exactly. essentially. Rachel Carson, uh, she wrote that book in 1962, and Monsanto went after her, <laughs> and Monsanto is still, I mean, they're still basically responsible 60 years later. Um, I don't know, it's just, it's like history repeating itself in a, in a way. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does seem like, and I make this point um, in my book and when I talk to people like this, that it seems like maybe we've forgotten the lessons uh, of Rachel Carson's work. Um, you know, we paid attention there for a while and we did, you see these movements and like the Center for Biological Diversity that you mentioned earlier, highlighting this, this study, they're certainly very uh, active and in, invested environmental groups out there working to protect us um, and working to raise awareness uh, like the work you're doing here, you know, sharing information, sharing research and science. Um, but unfortunately, you have very powerful forces working against that. Um, the, the chemical industry, you know, you see that, I mean, it's, it's oil and gas, pharmaceutical. I mean, yeah. when you have great wealth and great power in these corporate interests, uh, it is very hard to get government actors, regulators, and lawmakers to move to protect the public when they are, you know, 
funded by often closely aligned with these special interests. I mean, you know, that's a whole different show, I suppose. Yeah. But, uh, no, it, it, it ties into uh, all of these problems are sort of um, revolve around economics. And if, uh, and this is kind of the, the main thing that this show wants to get across is that so long as we say nothing is sacred, that nothing matters more than money, and our pursuit of money, then yeah, you know, a company like Monsanto is going to be able to get away with whatever they want. I did see some footage where I guess you were speaking to the European Parliament, right? The EU yeah. Parliament. So did I'm just fascinated by this. So did they reach out to you and ask you to come speak, or how, how did that happen? Yeah, so this was in um, 2017, and it was in October, uh, which actually was the month my book was released, Whitewash. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the European Parliament was looking at the renewal, the license of glyphosate to renew it or not renew it mm -hmm. uh, in Europe for use in Europe. And, uh, you know, there were great concerns. They were aware of my book and my work and my research. And so I was one of seven experts. I put that in quotes. I don't know that I consider myself an expert, but um, they invited six scientists and myself to come and testify in Brussels to the European Parliament to give I them what information. That, and, they had, and they had one scientist there named, a guy named Kirkland, who right, I guess David he Kirkland. was, he was the Monsanto scientist, correct? Well, he, <laughs> yeah, they, they had, they tried to sort of divide it up, you know, people pro-glyphosate, I guess you would say, or anti-glyphosate, that sort of thing. I was sort of in the middle, neither pro nor, I didn't take a position on banning it or not right. banning it. I just right, wanted right. to share my research. Uh, the person who was supposed to be sitting next to me to give information, was they invited the chairman of Monsanto, uh, Hugh Grant. He declined, and they declined to send anyone from Monsanto at all to testify to the European Parliament, which made the Parliament uh, members extraordinarily angry, you know, mm -hmm. said, you know, you should be willing to speak to us. And, uh, so a man named David Kirkland, who was a scientist, showed up um, to speak. He declared himself to be independent of Monsanto, an independent voice. Um, so I included in my slideshow to the parliament uh, some information about the contract that he had with Monsanto to be paid um, as a consultant to Monsanto. So yeah. he was one of many scientists around the world that Monsanto has been paying uh, secretly without really disclosing that uh, to have these scientists proclaim the safety of glyphosate. And yeah, and he was defending his reputation. And just for the listeners out there, you can get anyone to say anything if you pay them enough. <laughs> so that's just a fact of life. It, just because he's a scientist doesn't mean that he was not impartial, especially if he's, on, if he's on I the don't payroll. Know. I'm not sure anybody could pay me enough to get me to say things that I, I didn't. And I don't no, wonder about you. you as well. So no, no, no. Yeah, not me, but, but not a everyone. lot of people. Maybe yeah. not everyone. You know, because you worked for for Reuters for so long, I am curious. There is a lot of assumption among some people that mainstream media, whatever that means, is afraid to really go after you know, corporations because of corporate interests and that they have pressure in the newsrooms and stuff like that. And so I was wondering when you went off 
and started reporting on food and farming and you researched cancer among farmers you started looking at what we're doing to the land what we're doing to the soil the fact that granola bars have pesticides in them you know you almost you can't even escape it it's inescapable did you ever and i know you're no longer with reuters but did anyone ever tell you you know we really can't you know don't go after them so so yes very directly very directly yes my what was that like uh, the again i was there i joined reuters in 1998 um mm -hmm. to cover agriculture and monsanto i spent many years doing this um monsanto uh pushed back a lot it, it is common companies especially you know the more powerful and wealthy they they are very strategic and very savvy in how to deal with very big media outlets such as reuters and mm -hmm. um so it's quite common if you're doing stories that don't necessarily reflect their best look, right, or their agenda or threaten them in, in any way or criticize them in any way, they're going to push back, they're going to go to your editors, they're going to complain, they're going to ask for corrections or changes. And if you make mistakes, you know, you have to be fair uh, and, and as balanced as possible and represent all legitimate facts, you know, to your readers. So it's part of the it's part of the business that they would push back and they did really, really hard, harder than any other company I'd ever dealt with. And I covered the banking industry and the healthcare industry as well. But um, I just had really good, strong editors for the first 12, 13, 14 years, I guess, who <laughs> said, you know, if there's anything wrong with the story, let us know. But otherwise, you know, this is good journalism and see you around, Monsanto. Um, I got a brand new editor in late 2013 who, uh, hadn't really done this big time business before. And he did not like the pressure from Monsanto and they leaned on him really hard. And uh, he told me in 2014, right before the International Agency for Research on Cancer declared to be a probable human carcinogen, that I was not allowed to write about any scientific research on glyphosate ever again. And uh, that I should- Who told you that? Uh, editor by the name of David Grising. He's no longer with Reuters. David uh, uh, he had a very short stint there, but um, no longer allowed to write about any scientific research and that uh, I should find something else to write about. I remember him telling me, no one cares about glyphosate. It's not a story. Uh, there's nothing here. <laughs> I often wonder now that it's exploded into this you know, global litigation, 100,000 plaintiffs, you know, Monsanto's owner paying 15 billion in settle, you know, if he, uh, if he reflects back on that conversation where he, <laughs> well, but, but to answer your question, yes, I mean, it, it is arguably part of the business to expect that corporations are going to do their utmost to sway journalists uh, and to control what's written about them. But if you have good journalism, good journalists and good editors, you know, and you follow the facts, uh, you're fine. So. Um, but there are bad editors out there. No, no, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> and bad reporters. Well, because I was just thinking, and I kind of have my own ideas uh, about this, but why do you have to go to The Intercept or The Guardian to read about Monsanto, but not the Today Show mm -hmm. or 
any of these uh, mainstream shows or mainstream outlets. And it, they're, I mean, the public is probably on to something when they're like, there's got to be something behind the scenes as there's to been, why. Yes, there's been so much pressure. I mean, I've had, uh, you know, CBS, 60 Minutes, uh, lots of different news outlets have reached out to me over the years, you know, wanting reporters will reach out, but then they'll get pushback from editors. And uh, it's, it's a dicey game and it really takes a lot to get, you know, to get some news outlets to fight back or stand up to that kind of pressure. And, um, and again, it's not just, I mean, Monsanto is a very good example. I sort of described Monsanto as the poster child for this much bigger issue. Um, you see it with Pfizer right now, you know, with the pharmaceuticals, uh, talk to reporters who say, you know, gosh, if they're writing a story that doesn't follow the exact narrative that, you know, the pharmaceutical industry wants to see on vaccines right now, you know, they get, right. they get shut down, uh, you know. Uh, well, you you also had talked about the, um, and I want to ask you about the EPA in a second because uh, Environmental Protection Agency. It sounds like they are charged with protecting the environment, but they don't really they don't really do that, do they? The EPA. Yeah, I mean, what I'll say about the EPA is I I, I know people inside the EPA. I've talked to scientists there. There are a lot of really good people there. I think who work really hard to try to do that to do their yeah. job. And I they had le they had some leadership changes in the last yeah, administration yeah. that probably wouldn't reflect on everyone down, you know, downstream. Like not all the employees, but certainly, um, I think the last admin the last administration had someone in there who had been suing the EPA or the EPA was suing him. And then he became, I can't remember his name, but, um, but they, they're supposed to be looking out for the environment. However, like uh, it is Monsanto and the chemical companies who are dictating when it talked about to the FDA, who were telling the FDA, for instance, what the lag, what the levels should be. <laughs> yeah. You were talking about that in one of your talks, correct? Yes. I mean, in terms of just the EPA specifically, I've written extensively about the EPA for some textbooks and other books as well, and other people have. But the EPA, sadly, has become so politicized and so corrupted, and it it is not uh, related to who's in office and which party is in control and who's appointing. It's become systemic, endemic to the agency. And the scientists who are working in there trying to do their best job to protect the public have been pushing back against this since its formation virtually. Mm -hmm. And it's been documented over and over in whistleblower lawsuits and, and different administrations. The Obama administration acknowledged it, you know, the Trump administration. I mean, people have been trying to fix this for years, but uh, it, it isn't getting fixed. And this past summer, four scientists from the EPA actually came forward, came out as whistleblowers, put their names out there, brought audio recordings and emails as evidence of the corruption where their managers within the EPA were actually telling them to alter their research and change it to hide the cancer risks of certain chemicals. And what year was this? This year. This Well, 2021. Last okay, summer. so this is recent very recent 2021 
and uh, they sadly spoke, brought forward evidence of things that occurred during the Trump administration and during the Biden administration, the early months of the Biden administration. So again, it's really a nonpartisan problem. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, okay. it's a politicized and a corruption problem. And to your other point about Monsanto telling the FDA, USDA where to set the levels, it's actually mm -hmm. the EPA that sets the levels. Um, okay. And then the USDA and FDA do the testing uh, to see if there's compliance within those levels. Um, but yeah, I mean, the EPA is essentially uh, looking to the chemical industry to determine what what levels of these chemicals are safe for us to take into our bodies in food and water and different exposures. And, uh, you know, you can argue, I guess, both sides of why that is, but certainly it doesn't seem like the best system to be relying on the companies. And the other thing is we rely on the company research, our regulators when the companies want to bring a chemical to market, they do the research, fund the research, hand it over to the EPA. The EPA does not do original uh, research, research in determining what can be allowed on the market. You know, there was a, uh, a PBS, I think it was PBS Frontline documentary about Boeing and the FAA. And right. so Boeing had a problem with one of their planes. I can't remember which one, but... They, the FAA was similarly taking cues and instructions from Boeing as to what they should approve and what they should allow and without doing any kind of independent testing or independent research. And it ended up costing a lot of people their lives and, and planes crashing. Right. So you do, you do see kind of parallels where the corporate world can kind of tell government what they want and government doesn't say anything. They're just like, okay, whatever you want, you can have it. And people end up dying. People end up paying with their lives um, just with the, I guess, the manipulation of regulators or, you know, regulatory agencies. Right. Yeah. Again, I mean, it, it does. It, it, you're right with Boeing and the automotive industry. And, uh, you know, we, we need really a whole <laughs> change in Washington in terms of, you know, how politics uh, and corporate influence, uh, you know, works with our laws and with our regulations. And so it's a bigger problem. And, and it's, it's unfortunate. And my, my new book, the Monsanto Papers, really delves into that issue about we shouldn't have to rely on lawyers and mass tort litigation and our court system to hold companies accountable when their products injure people or kill people. Mm -hmm. But in this highly imperfect system that we have created and allowed to persist, the court system really is the only way now that individuals have um, to hold companies accountable and to create enough pressure on these companies that they will change their products or change their ways. And, you know, Monsanto, they're, Corporate owner is now Bayer, Bayer AG, the big pharmaceutical company. They've announced they're removing glyphosate from the consumer market by 2023. They would not have done that had it not been for all the litigation. They're doing that to mitigate litigation liability is what they've right. stated. So they're going to remove it from store shelves. From store shelves. 
to try but, to limit their liability. It shouldn't have been because of litigation. We shouldn't have right. to rely on lawyers to do that. It should have been the regulator's job to. Right. But, um, you know, like local government, like fish and wildlife uh, agencies, they're spraying that stuff all over the place. So that's probably going to continue. Exactly. I'm guessing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, the manatees will continue to uh, have ever higher levels of glyphosate in their system. Yeah. And the manatees are getting it from all angles. And, and we will do a show on, on that because they are just, they, number one, manatees are the sweetest just sweetest, most harmless animals. They have no natural predators. They're starving to death because of two things, um, nitrogen fertilizer, which, uh, and, and other, other chemicals and fertilizer that are, um, polluting the water and preventing the sunlight from hitting the seagrass. So they're starving and they're getting the glyphosate. Yeah. So they're getting it, they're getting it from all angles. But I was curious about your kind of like one-on-one interactions with people because you've spoken to farmers you've spoken to people at monsanto you've spoken to government regulators you've spoken to scientists and so like let's say you're speaking to someone who they're aligned with monsanto or they're aligned with a chemical company and maybe they have the company line that they have to um that they have to promote, which is, you know, glyphosate is safe or there's no cancer risk or whatever it is that they're told they have to say. But on a personal level, did you encounter sympathy and understanding where maybe it was even off the record or just a sense that people understood what you were getting at, but it's just this system that people are operating within. So they kind of can't say what they really want to say or they their paychecks or their salaries or their careers are tied to this kind of, yeah. you know what I mean? Did yeah. you find a personal the, connection with anyone? So that's the sort of the age old question. I think you're getting to the point of, is there a, is there a moral compass, you know, that has shown itself anywhere here? Um, I will say in the other industries and other companies and things that I've written about and covered, it, it's been much easier easier i suppose to find that that secret source inside you know that internal source or that person who says you know monsanto was pretty locked down um none of the top level officials there have i ever heard one word of doubt or (laughs) one word of you know reflection i'm laughing laughing because it's just it almost sounds like a like just like a Seinfeld episode, like never, no, okay, never. no, nothing, no risk, you know, like no. just, yeah. But internally, but there have been, you know, I've, I've talked to several people who worked there, you know, there's one family and their father worked there all of his life. And he worked in the manu- on the manufacturing side and worked with glyphosate and, um, you know, died of, of cancer, died of at, 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 a Monsanto worker. Yeah. And, you know, and then there are a lot of people who sort of are worker bees, I guess, inside Monsanto, Mm -hmm. who, who certainly have their doubts and their concerns and feel horrible about things that, but, but certainly the higher level people and the higher level scientists uh, have never expressed any doubt um, and continue to assert to this day that there is no cause for any problem with their. So is Monsanto like a, they're a global company? So Monsanto is actually now, but yes, they had global operations all around 
the world. Uh, the very they were the largest seed company in the world. They bought up uh, most of the independent seed companies and really became a, a global agricultural giant, influencing agricultural practices around the world. But they originated in, in 1901 uh, with uh, food ingredients and industrial chemicals. They were a player in the Vietnam War, helping produce the chemicals for Agent Orange. Uh, they were involved in PCB uh, manufacturing. So they have a long history as an industrial chemical company. They also, but when they moved into agriculture, they tried a bit to get into uh, like the, the bovine growth hormones, you know, to give the dairy cattle to make them produce more milk. Mm -hmm. uh, that turned out to be a real problem because it created infections and things in some of the dairy cows and that became a whole issue. Um, yeah. But uh, you almost wonder what, where the line gets drawn from, okay, we uh, have to solve a problem that the world needs solved and crosses over into, well, let's just make money. What can we do now? Oh yeah, sure. Let's get into dairy. Uh, you know, I mean, because we are told that, and, you know, and you've alluded to this in some of your talks as well. Um, you do hear a kind of counter argument. Um, well, would you rather have um, a few people die of cancer or the whole world you know, starving to death, you know, like we're feeding the world, like, which on the one hand, it's, it's a, it's a slight relief because number one, okay, you're admitting that your product causes cancer. So it's, they're admitting it. On the other hand, they're kind of saying, um, yes, we admit it, but it's the lesser of two evils. So it's like, you know, it's just interesting. <laughs> well, so there's a lot of ways to answer that or discuss that, I guess. So first yeah. of all, there are a lot of people dying from cancer. Uh, 600,000 people approximately in the U.S. every year die from, uh, or not die from, uh, yes, die from cancer. 40% uh, of men and women in the U.S. are expected to get cancer. Uh, that's, in, a, that's a huge figure. In their lifetimes. 40%. Four out of 10. That is 40%. insane. Uh, this is according to our National Cancer Institute. Uh, childhood cancers are on the rise. Our National Toxicology Program has issued report after report after report trying to warn us uh, that environmental contaminants, pesticides, as well as all of these other sorts of chemicals and things that we're exposed to uh, on a daily basis are driving these these rates of cancer um who, who, what agency who who said that that last fact? our national toxicology program okay which is part of our national institutes of environmental health sciences and i okay um uh so you know our our government scientists recognize this scientists around the world recognize that we're basically killing ourselves you know we are destroying our right. health and the health environment uh, with these environmental contaminants like glyphosate and a whole array of others. Um, the the push-pull, of course, is what you alluded to there, what you said directly, yeah. that the companies that are that are selling these chemicals and pushing them out into the world and saying, I, you know, say there's a higher purpose, you got to feed the world, or yeah. we want convenience, we want, uh, you know, to be comfortable. We want everything in plastic because it's easy and convenient for us. We want, you know, so you do have to 
weigh this. What is the pro? What is the con? When it comes to these chemicals and food production, um, the notion of feeding the world is is really not backed by data. It's it's sort of a you know propaganda that the chemical industry has built up to be almost believed, I guess, by people who right. don't know better. Right. But, uh, but it is not backed by data, and the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization has tried has made that extraordinarily clear, and they have they have called for you know a dramatic decline in pesticide use because of this and they have documented how false it is to say you need this to feed the world. If people are not starving, you're not seeing a lack of adequate nutrition around the world because you don't have enough pesticide use. You're seeing it for a whole array of other reasons which are economic and political and deal with infrastructure and, you know, income right. levels and all that sort of thing. It's not for a, a lack of pesticides by any means. And one of the truly alarming aspects of the pesticide use in our environment is it's it's so recent you know if you look if you consider the fact that i mean we're just talking about a handful of decades compared to the thousands and thousands of years that civilization civilization has existed you know do we even know that we're not uh damaging the soil beyond repair I'm talking about for future generations. Like, you know, it's it's as though we are assuming that no one is going to come after us, that there <laughs> will be no people, you know, that we have to worry about in 500 years. But we're treating the earth and the oceans as though we're the last people that will ever live here. And we are certainly, um, let me put it this way, we don't have the answers to be able to say like without any doubt that we're not harming the soil, that we're not causing it to become infertile, infertile or, um, or I don't know. Well, we do actually have a lot of answers and I've you know, written okay. about that in my book and there, you know, there's a big body of evidence out there that yes, I mean, the, we are harming the quality of the soil. So um, it's not debatable. And it, it, no, it's really not debatable. The, <laughs> the amount of research out there is, is pretty profound. But uh, all of this, yes, I mean, uh, and when you harm the quality of the soil, you make the, the plants that you're growing there more vulnerable to disease and, you know, yield less. And so maybe the farmer does then want, it's a vicious cycle where you, you know, you pour more pesticides on and then your crops are more vulnerable to disease. And so you need some more fungicide or uh, they're more vulnerable to, you know, weeds. Weeds become resistant to the weed killer that you keep pouring on your fields. And so then you have to put more weed killer on there. And the same with insect resistance. And uh, it's really... So why, why do you think that they continue to do what they're doing? I say they, I mean like Monsanto. I mean, they, they, they must know that, you know, it's beyond a slippery slope. And why do they not care? I mean, on a human level, I mean, I know you probably don't have all the answers, but it, it seems, it seems like they must, like, what do they say? I know what we already talked about. They say, well, we're solving the world's hunger problems, but what else do they say when scientists say, Hey, you know, the, the, fer the, the soil could, you could be leading to the infertility of the soil within 60 years. What do they say 
they deny it. You know, they denied, Monsanto denied that weed resistance would become a problem when they told farmers they could spray directly over their crops with Roundup, with glyphosate-based Roundup. Uh, weed scientists warned that weed resistance then would become a problem and would would hurt the soil and farmers would have to, you know, this was back in the early 2000s. They warned the EPA, they held meetings, they brought EPA inspectors out. They said, please, this is going to be a huge problem. Monsanto said it wasn't until about 2013, and then Monsanto said, oh gosh, yeah, we have over a million acres of weed resistance now in the U.S., and uh, so I guess we're going to have to uh, recommend that farmers use more uh, pesticides now uh, to solve that problem we created, and so they rolled out uh, dicamba in conjunction with glyphosate, uh, herbicides where they could spray uh, two different types of active ingredients at the same time, so um, I don't think that again answers your question, but no, no, there's no answers here. There's no answers here. But we, glyphosate has been banned by the the, the the EU takes steps to ban glyphosate based on what you told them and those hearings and stuff. Uh, well, so the European Parliament did then vote uh, to ban glyphosate uh, in 2017, but uh, it's all very interesting. <laughs> the, the larger body of the European Commission, when they took the votes um, by member states, it came down essentially to a tie, and the final vote uh, was to come from Germany. Uh, Germany had abstained uh, on voting whether or not they could go forward and, and reapprove it. Uh, the Prime Minister, or what is Angela, Mer Angelica, Angelica Merkel? Angela Merkel. I can't even say it. Yes. Uh, had directed no vote be taken, uh, the ag minister then stepped in at the last minute, and it was all very dramatic, and voted to reapprove glyphosate, but on a very short term, and uh, it was quite a scandal. Why would he do that? And uh, so it was reapproved for um, a short term, but it is now up for relicensing again, um, because it was only approved for that very short term, that five years. So... Um, they're in the battle again now. And it's and now it's a partially German German owned company. And right? yeah, surprisingly or not surprisingly, um, in 2018, uh, the German based bear uh, um, closed on its purchase of Monsanto. So we wonder why the German ag minister <laughs> jumped right. in to approve that. Um, or maybe we don't wonder. Mm -hmm.